Chapter Twenty Seven, Part One of the Talisman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Talisman by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Twenty Seven, Part One. We heard the takbir, so these Arabs call their shouts of onset, when, with loud acclaim, they challenge heaven to give them victory. Siege of Damascus On the subsequent morning, Richard was invited to a conference by Philip of France, in which the latter, with many expressions of his high esteem for his brother of England, communicated to him, in terms extremely courteous, but too explicit to be misunderstood, his positive intention to return to Europe, and to the cares of his kingdom, as entirely despairing of future success in their undertaking, with their diminished forces and civil discords. Richard remonstrated, but in vain, and when the conference ended, he received without surprise a manifesto from the Duke of Austria and several other princes, announcing a resolution similar to that of Philip, and, in no modified terms, assigning, for their defection from the cause of the cross, the inordinate ambition and arbitrary domination of Richard of England. All hopes of continuing the war with any prospect of ultimate success were now abandoned, and Richard, while he shed bitter tears of his disappointed hopes of glory, was little consoled by the recollection that the failure was, in some degree, to be imputed to the advantages which he had given his enemies by his own hasty and imprudent temper. "'They had not dared to have deserted my father thus,' he said to Devore in the bitterness of his resentment. No slanders they could have uttered against so wise a king would have been believed in Christendom, whereas, for that I am, I have not only afforded them a pretext for deserting me, but even a colour for casting all the blame of the rupture upon my unhappy foibles. These thoughts were so deeply galling to the king, that de Vaux was rejoiced when the arrival of an ambassador from Saladin turned his reflections into a different channel. This new envoy was an emir much respected by the Soldan, whose name was Abdallah el Hadgi. He derived his descent from the family of the Prophet, and the race or tribe of Hashim, in witness of which genealogy he wore a green turban of large dimensions. He had also three times performed the journey to Mecca, from which he had derived his epithet of el Hajj, or the Pilgrim. Notwithstanding these various pretensions to sanctity, Abdullah was, for an Arab, a boon companion, who enjoyed a merry table, and laid aside his gravity so far as to quaff a blithe flagon, when secrecy ensured him against scandal. He was likewise a statesman, whose abilities had been used by Saladin in various negotiations with the Christian princes, and particularly with Richard, to whom el Hajj was personally known and acceptable. Animated by the cheerful acquiescence with which the envoy of Saladin afforded a fair field for the combat, a safe conduct for all who might choose to witness it, and offered his own person as a guarantee for his fidelity, Richard soon forgot his disappointed hopes, and the approaching dissolution of the Christian League, in the interesting discussion preceding a combat in the lists. The station called the Diamond of the Desert was assigned for the place of conflict, as being nearly at an equal distance betwixt the Christian and Saracen camps. 
It was agreed that Conrad of Montserrat, the defendant, with his godfathers, the Archduke of Austria, and the Grand Master of the Templars, should appear there on the day fixed for the combat, with a hundred armed followers and no more. That Richard of England and his brother Salisbury, who supported the accusation, should attend with the same number to protect his champion, and that the Soldan should bring with him a guard of five hundred chosen followers, a band considered as not more than equal to the two hundred Christian lances. Such persons of consideration, as either party chose to invite to witness the contest, were to wear no other weapon than their swords, and to come without defensive armour. The Soldan undertook the preparation of the lists, and to provide accommodations and refreshments of every kind for all who were to assist at the solemnity, and his letters expressed with much courtesy the pleasure which he anticipated in the prospect of a personal and peaceful meeting with the Melach Rick, and his anxious desire to render his reception as agreeable as possible. All preliminaries being arranged and communicated to the defendant and his godfathers, Abdullah the Hajj was admitted to a more private interview, where he heard with delight the strains of Blondel. Having first carefully put his green turban out of sight, and assumed a Greek cap in its stead, he requited the Norman minstrel's music with a drinking song from the Persian, and quaffed a hearty flagon of Cyprus wine, to show that his practice matched his principles. On the next day, grave and sober as the water-drinker, Mergilp, he bent his brow to the ground before Saladin's footstool, and rendered to the soldan an account of his embassy. On the day before that appointed for the combat, Conrad and his friends set off by daybreak to repair to the place assigned, and Richard left the camp at the same hour and for the same purpose. But, as it had been agreed upon, he took his journey by a different route, a precaution which had been judged necessary to prevent the possibility of a quarrel betwixt their armed attendants. The good king himself was in no humour for quarrelling with any one, Nothing could have added to his pleasurable anticipations of a desperate and bloody combat in the lists, except his being in his own royal person one of the combatants, and he was half in charity again even with Conrad of Montserrat. Lightly armed, richly dressed, and gay as a bridegroom on the eve of his nuptials, Richard caracoled along by the side of Queen Berengaria's litter, pointing out to her the various scenes through which they passed and cheering with tale and song the bosom of the inhospitable wilderness. The former route of the Queen's pilgrimage to Engadi had been on the other side of the chain of mountains, so that the ladies were strangers to the scenery of the desert, and though Berengaria knew her husband's disposition too well not to endeavour to seem interested in what he was pleased either to say or to sing, she could not help indulging some female fears when she found herself in the howling wilderness, with so small an escort, which seemed almost like a moving speck on the bosom of the plain, and knew at the same time they were not so distant from the camp of Saladin, but what they might be in a moment surprised and swept off by an overpowering host in his fiery-footed cavalry, should the pagan be faithless enough to embrace an opportunity thus tempting. But when she hinted these suspicions to Richard, he repelled them with displeasure and disdain. "'It were worse than ingratitude,' he said, 
to doubt the good faith of the generous Soldan. Yet the same doubts and fears reoccurred more than once, not to the timid mind of the Queen alone, but to the firmer and more candid soul of Edith Plantagenet, who had no such confidence in the faith of the Moslem as to render her perfectly at ease when so much in their power. And her surprise had been far less than her terror, if the desert around had suddenly resounded with the shout of Allah Ho, and a band of Arab cavalry had pounced on them like vultures on their prey. Nor were these suspicions lessened when, as the evening approached, they were aware of a single Arab horseman, distinguished by his turban and long lance, hovering on the edge of a small eminence like a hawk poised in the air, and who instantly, on the appearance of the royal retinue, darted off with the speed of the same bird when it shoots down the wind and disappears from the horizon. "'We must be near the station,' said King Richard, "'and yonder cavalier is one of Saladin's outposts. "'Methinks I hear the noise of the Moorish horns and cymbals. "'Get you into order, my hearts, "'and form yourselves around the ladies, soldier-like and firmly.' "'As he spoke, each knight, squire, and archer "'hastily closed in upon his appointed ground, "'and they proceeded in the most compact order, "'which made their numbers appear still smaller.' And, to say the truth, though there might be no fear, there was anxiety, as well as curiosity, in the attention with which they listened to the wild bursts of Moorish music, which came ever and anon more distinctly, from the quarter in which the Arab horsemen had been seen to disappear. De Vaux spoke in a whisper to the king, "'Were it not well, my liege, to send a page to the top of that sandbank, or would it stand with your pleasure that I prick forward?' Methinks by all yonder clash and clang, if there be no more than five hundred men beyond the sand-hills, half of the Saldan's retinue must be drummers and cymbal-tossers. Shall I spur on? The baron had checked his horse with the bit, and was just about to strike him with the spurs, when the king exclaimed, Not for the world. Such a caution would express suspicion, and could do little to prevent surprise, which, however, I apprehended not. They advanced accordingly in close and firm order, till they surmounted the line of low sand-hills, and came in sight of the appointed station, when a splendid, but at the same time a startling spectacle awaited them. The diamond of the desert, so lately a solitary fountain, distinguished only amid the waste by solitary groups of palm-trees, was now the centre of an encampment. The embroidered flags and gilded ornaments of which glittered far and wide, and reflected a thousand rich tints against the setting sun. The coverings of the large pavilions were of the gayest colours, scarlet, bright yellow, pale blue, and other gaudy and gleaming hues, and the tops of their pillars, or tent-poles, were decorated with golden pomegranates and small silken flags. But besides these distinguished pavilions, there was what Thomas de Vore considered as a portentous number of the ordinary black tents of the Arabs, being sufficient, as he conceived, to accommodate, according to the eastern fashion, a host of five thousand men. A number of Arabs and Kurds, fully corresponding to the extent of the encampment, were hastily assembling, each leading his horse in his hand, and their muster was accompanied by an astonishing clamour of their noisy instruments of martial music, by which, in all ages, the warfare of the Arabs has been animated. 
they soon formed a deep and confused mass of dismounted cavalry in front of their encampment, when, at the signal of a shrill cry, which arose high over the clangor of the music, each cavalier sprung to his saddle. A cloud of dust arising at the moment of this manoeuvre hid from Richard and his attendants the camp, the palm-trees, and the distant ridge of mountains, as well as the troops whose sudden movement had raised the cloud, and, ascending high over the hills, formed itself into the fantastic forms of writhed pillars, domes, and marionettes. Another shrill yell was heard from the bosom of this cloudy tabernacle. It was a signal for the cavalry to advance, which they did at full gallop, disposing themselves as they came forward, so as to come in at once in the foot, flanks, and rear of Richard's little bodyguard, who were thus surrounded, and almost choked by the dense clouds of dust enveloping them on each side, through which were seen alternately and lost the grim forms and wild faces of the Saracens, brandishing and tossing their lances in every possible direction, with the wildest cries and halloos, and frequently only reining up their horses when within a spear's length of the Christians, while those in the rear discharged over the heads of both parties thick volleys of arrows. One of these struck the litter in which the queen was seated, who loudly screamed, and the red spot was on Richard's brow in an instant. "'Ha! St. George!' he exclaimed. "'We must take some order with this infidel scum!' But Edith, whose litter was nearer, thrust her head out, and with her hand holding one of the shafts, exclaimed, "'Royal Richard, beware what you do. See, these arrows are headless!' "'Noble, sensible wench!' exclaimed Richard. "'By heaven, thou shamest all by thy readiness of thought and eye. "'Be not moved, my English hearts!' he exclaimed to his followers. "'Their arrows have no heads, and their spears, too, lack the steel points. "'It is but a wild welcome after their savage fashion, "'though doubtless they would rejoice to see us daunted or disturbed. "'Move onward, slow and steady.' "'The little phalanx moved forward accordingly, "'accompanied on all sides by the Arabs, "'with the shrillest and most piercing cries. "'The bowmen, meanwhile, displaying their agility,' by shooting as near the crests of the Christians as was possible, without actually hitting them, while the lancers charged each other with such rude blows of their blunt weapons that more than one of them lost his saddle, and well-nigh his life in this rough sport. All this, though designed to express welcome, had rather a doubtful appearance in the eyes of the Europeans. As they had advanced nearly half-way towards the camp, King Richard and his suit forming, as it were, the nucleus round which this tumultuous body of horsemen howled, whooped, skirmished and galloped, creating a scene of indescribable confusion. Another shrill cry was heard, on which all these irregulars, who were on the front and upon the flanks of the little body of Europeans, wheeled off, and forming themselves into a long and deep column, followed with comparative order and silence in the rear of Richard's troops. The dust began now to dissipate in their front, when there advanced to meet them, through that cloudy veil, a body of cavalry of a different and more regular description, completely armed with offensive and defensive weapons, and who might well have served as a bodyguard to the proudest of eastern monarchs. 
This splendid troop consisted of five hundred men, and each horse which it contained was worth an earl's ransom. The riders were Georgian and Caesarian slaves in the very prime of life. The helmets and hubrocks were formed of steel rings, so bright that they shone like silver. Their vestiges were of the gayest colours, and some of cloth of gold or silver. Their sashes were twisted with silk and gold, their rich turbans were plumed and jewelled, and their sabres and poignards of Damascan steel were adorned with gold and gems on hilt and scabbard. This splendid array advanced to the sound of military music, and when they met the Christian body, they opened their files to the right and left, and let them enter between their ranks. Richard now assumed the foremost place in his troop, aware that Saladin himself was approaching. Nor was it long when, in the centre of his bodyguard, surrounded by his domestic officers and those hideous negroes who guard the eastern harem, and whose misshapen forms were rendered yet more frightful by the richness of their attire, came the Soldan, with the look and manners of one on whose brow nature had written, This is a king. In his snow-white turban, vest, and wide eastern trousers, wearing a sash of scarlet silk without any other ornament, Saladin might have seemed the plainest-dressed man in his own guard. But closer inspection discerned in his turban that inestimable gem which was called by the poets the Sea of Light. The diamond on which his signet was engraved, and which he wore in a ring, was probably worth all the jewels of the English crown. And a sapphire which terminated the hilt of his kangir was not of a much inferior value. It should be added that, to protect himself from the dust, which in the vicinity of the Dead Sea resembles the finest ashes, or, perhaps out of oriental pride, the Soldan wore a sort of veil attached to his turban, which partly obscured the view of his noble features. He rode a milk-white Arabian, which bore him as if conscious and proud of his noble burden. There was no need of further introduction. The two heroic monarchs, for such they both were, threw themselves at once from horseback, and the troops halting and the music suddenly ceasing, they advanced to meet each other in profaned silence, and, after a courteous inclination on either side, they embraced as brethren and equals. The pomp and display upon both sides attracted no further notice. No one saw aught save Richard and Saladin, and they too beheld nothing but each other. The looks with which Richard surveyed Saladin were, however, more intently curious than those which the Soldan fixed upon him. And the Soldan also was the first to break silence. The Melak Brick is welcome to Saladin as water to the desert. I trust he hath no distrust of this numerous array, except in the armed slaves of my household. Those who surround you with eyes of wonder and welcome are, even with the humblest of them, the privileged nobles of my thousand tribes. For who that could claim a title to be present would remain at home when such a prince was to be seen as Richard, with the terrors of whose name, even on the sands of Yemen, the nurse stills her child, and the free Arab subdues his restive steed. And these are all nobles of Araby? said Richard, looking around on wild forms with their persons covered with hikes, their countenances swart with the sunbeams, their teeth as white as ivory, 
their black eyes glancing with fierce and preternatural lustre from under the shade of the turbans, and their dress being in general simple even to meanness. They claim such rank, said Saladin, but, though numerous, they are within the conditions of the treaty, and bear no arms but the sabre. Even the iron of their lances is left behind. I fear, muttered de Vaux in English, they have left them where they can be soon found. A most flourishing house of peers, I confess, and would find Westminster Hall something too narrow for them. Hush, de Vaux, said Richard. I command thee, noble Saladin, he said, suspicion and thou cannot exist on the same ground. Seest thou, pointing to the litters, I too have brought some champions with me, though armed, perhaps in breach of agreement, for bright eyes and fair features are weapons which cannot be left behind. The Saladin, turning to the litters, made an obeisance as lowly as if looking towards Mecca, and kissed the sand in token of respect. Nay, said Richard, they will not fear a close encounter, brother. Wilt thou not ride towards their litters, and their curtains will be presently withdrawn? That may Allah prohibit, said Saladin, since not an Arab looks on, who would not think it shame to see the noble ladies to be seen with their faces uncovered. Thou shalt see them then in private, brother, answered Richard. To what purpose? answered Saladin mournfully. Thy last letter was, to the hopes which I had entertained, like water to fire. And wherefore should I again light a flame which may indeed consume, but cannot cheer me? But will not my brother pass to the tent, which his servant hath prepared for him? My principal black slave hath taken order for the reception of the princesses. The officers of my household will attend your followers, and ourself will be the chamberlain of the royal Richard. End of chapter 27, part 1